Today's reading is from Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to to Christ. Thank you, TK. Appreciate that. Hello, everybody. Morning. My name is Scott, and I'm going to straighten out this thing here so I don't trip in front of you. Great to be with you today. Um, I want to invite you, as we always do, to take the black notebook in your rows, pass it on, get to know somebody's name if you don't know all the people in your row, uh, to prepare you to greet them during communion in a little bit. Uh, We really do use these notebooks. Uh, We look at them, we go over them. Uh, Sometimes they're prayed over and they help us immensely just know how we can serve you and such. So uh, please pass that on. And uh, there are actually two announcements, which are actually the same ones as last week, so I'll be uh, briefer this week. Uh, First one is October 13th. That's this Thursday, uh, CPC Central will be hosting Q Commons, and uh, the subject is uh, engaging a divided world, and the the featured national speakers, which will come to us through simulcast, will include Ravi Zacharias, uh, also Lecrae, uh, and uh, Ross Douthat from the New York Times, and also Kirsten Powers. And then we have three local, uh, local speakers who are focusing on raising a healthy next generation. And those will include Sissy Goff from Daystar Counseling, uh, Brenda Haywood, who works uh, in the city of Nashville with at-risk teenagers, and also Andrew Peterson, uh, who's a musician and also a writer of novels and children's books and such. So it'll be a great night, 7 p.m., child care is provided. Uh, all you got to do is register. The information is there in your bulletin, but you do need to register. This isn't just showing up. You've got to register because uh, there's a ticketing uh, process that, 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 that you've got to go through. So the second is if you're new to CPC, I would love to meet you. And tonight is going to be our quarterly newcomer's dessert. It's going to be at our house, and it's going to be at 7 p.m. And uh, so if you are new to CPC, curious about us, our community, our vision, how you might get involved and engaged in the life and ministry and mission of our church, uh, I would love to meet you at that. Uh, We live fairly close to here, and uh, all the information about how to get there tonight, uh, again, it's at 7 p.m., we'll be out there at the Welcome Center. So all those things being said, uh, we're continuing in our series that we're calling All In. It's our series on the vision of our church. And and, uh, uh, so this week's Uh, I guess, section that we're going to be talking about is public faith. And and, uh, if you want to take a look in your bulletin and and see this paragraph that starts on the left and and ends over here, you'll see the the mildly highlighted section. Going to be covering that section uh, today. And so so what I'd like to do is just start with um, 
uh, an observation that is not only true of the time that we're in right now, but, but that's, that's really been true throughout history, where, you know, leaders or would-be leaders uh, tend to stand up in front of large crowds of people or write uh, to large crowds of people and make a promise uh, based on optimism. Uh, with me in leadership or with my tribe in leadership, things are going to get better. The world is going to take a turn for, for, for the better. And uh, in 1922, almost 100 years ago, one of those people was the British secular humanist H.G. Wells. And this was sort of in the post-Lightenment uh, era where there was uh, great optimism and momentum about the potential of human beings to solve global problems. And so H.G. Wells in 1922 said these words, the human race will more than realize our boldest imaginations. We will achieve unity and peace. We and our children will live in a world more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of, of adventure and achievement. So almost a hundred years later, is this vision, are there signs that this vision is being fulfilled? Or does it feel that, 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 that we might actually be in the reverse on this vision? As our world becomes more cynical and more divided, and as more isms are added to the social problems that we deal with on a regular basis. So, 20 years after he made this statement, H.G. Wells answered that question for us. And he said this, human depravity has come near to breaking my spirit, anticlimax. And today, you know, we, we've been barraged with this even in the last week, violence, poverty, racism, economic injustice, child neglect, child abuse, children sold into prostitution, children trained to be soldiers, handed guns at the age of six. Loveless marriages, famine, and so on. The political right, just this week, the political right boasting about using power to exploit women sexually. The political left, in a more subtle way, but still boasting about using power in a way that will make vulnerable children who are unborn even more vulnerable. We don't have a political solution to the world's problems. What we have is the promise, or at least it feels that way, that things are going to get worse no matter what happens in November. It's going to be worse. That's why we're all voting against instead of for. So what's the answer? You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, you're the answer. You are the answer to the woes of the world and to the fatigue and the cynicism and the despair and the division. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the city on a hill. And so, so what I want to do is, is, is unpack those three metaphors a little bit that Jesus offers and then locate the metaphors into our own context and into our own story as Christ's present, as people who inhabit the city of Nashville, Tennessee at this particular time in history. So, first, the three metaphors in their context. Each one of these metaphors is a picture of how Jesus intends for His church to participate in the fulfilling of His mission in the world. 
First metaphor is salt. You are the salt of the earth. Now, salt was used then as it is now as a seasoner, uh, as something that brings out the, the, the best of the flavor that's already there in, in whatever you're, you're going to, to eat. But salt also had an even more uh, frequent use than that in those days, and it was as a preservative. They didn't have refrigeration technology or freezer technology back in that day. They didn't have the, the, the sort of chemical preservatives back in that day. But what they did have was salt. And you could put a piece of, of meat or, or, or chicken or something or, you know, whatever, quail, whatever you ate. You, put it, you immerse it in the salt and it would slow the decaying process and give you enough time to, to get to it and eat it before it spoiled. And so in order to do its job then, the salt has to actually come in contact with that which it is intended to protect and preserve and bring out the best in. And so what Jesus is getting at here, it's not hard to draw the connection. Jesus is saying this, to be effective in a secular world, you have to be in contact with a secular world in a very specific way as the minority ingredient. I'll get to that in a second. So, so basically, in first century Rome, there were two uh, prevailing philosophies um, among religious people, among people of faith, about how religious people were supposed to live and survive in, in a secular-driven world uh, of Caesar's Rome. And the one group was the Pharisees. We, we know about this group the most from, from the New Testament. Their strategy was to separate from the secular world, to, to build their own ghetto over here that, 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 that has its own things, right? You don't eat a cheeseburger over here. You, you, you eat a Christian cheeseburger. You know, you, you, don't, you don't buy clothing over here. You, 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 you manufacture and purchase Christian clothing. Like you, you separate everything. You become your own little ghetto over here. You don't have non-Christian friends. You only have friends that, that believe like you and think like you and worship like you and so on. Those were the Pharisees. But the problem with salt, we've talked about this before, the problem with salt is if you take it and you turn it into a side dish rather than integrate it into to all the other ingredients on the plate, if you turn it into a side dish, when you put it in your mouth, it's, it's bitter, it tastes foul, and, and it raises your blood pressure when you swallow it. It's unhealthy. So this, the Pharisee vision is, is, is what you could call the stick-in-the-mud vision for, for cultural engagement. You know, by this, all people will know that you're my followers if you are a stick-in-the-mud and suck the life and the joy out of the air by, by, by pointing your finger out all the time, never realizing that there are three more fingers pointing back at you at the same time. But then the other, you know, pendulum swing strategy is the Sadducee strategy, whereas where, where the Sadducees, instead of separating from the world, said, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to attract the world to our religion. We're going we're to become like the world. We're, we're going to see whatever the secular trends are, and we're going to get on board. We're going to adapt our theology. We're going to revise the Scriptures. We're, we're, going to, we're going to integrate and remain flexible so that the world will like us more. We can become more like the world, and, and, and maybe they'll put us in power. Maybe, maybe they'll like us back. And oftentimes, we fall into the trap of thinking that's our goal is, is to get all people to like us. No, our goal is to get people to love Jesus. Our goal is to be faithful, not, not, not as a means to an end, but, but to be faithful to Jesus for its own sake, because to be faithful to Jesus is to be fully and truly human. 
So what is the way forward? You know, about the Sadducee approach, Garrison Keillor says this, the attempts of the church to modernize its message and to look and sound more like the world are almost always foolish and counterproductive. So what is the way forward? Madeline Lingle answered this question beautifully when she said, we Christians, followers of Jesus, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are. That's the Pharisee approach. But by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all of their hearts to know the source of it. So salt neither dominates nor integrates. Salt is counter culture for the common good. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, it's, it's not in being like the world that the world is drawn to Christianity, it's, it's in our being different than the world that, that, that actually attracts the world to Christianity and to Christ. It's the unique picture that, that, that Christ and Christianity, biblical Christianity, gives of what it means to be human, what it means to be a community, what it means to reach out to the world around you. It's that unique vision that draws people to Christ, being different, not being the same. The gospel is good news for everybody. It should be good news not just for you as a believer in Jesus, but also for the people around you who don't identify as believers in Jesus because you're in their life and because the light of Christ is shining off of you. And when the light of Christ shines off of you in the places where you live and work and play, it makes life better for everybody, not just for Christians. The light's so lovely. And, you know, the question comes up, well, what about the offense of the cross, you know? Eleven of the twelve disciples died because, you know, they were martyred, and, 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 and Rome hated them. And, 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 and Jesus, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. And he, he was always going around offended, offending people. And even after his resurrection, he only had 120 followers. Okay, fair question. Important question. Because if we aren't offensive ever, if we look back on the last 10 or 20 years of our Christianity and we can't identify a single place where somebody was offended by our existence, then we're not being faithful. But the question is, who are we offending? Are we offending the people that were drawn to Christ? Are we alienating and marginalizing the very people about whom it says in Luke 15, all the sinners were gathering around Jesus to hear what he had to say and to be with him? Or are we offending the same people that Jesus did, the Pharisees, the smug ones, the sticks in the mud, the ones who were running around scrutinizing everybody? Did you know that Jesus didn't shame anybody except the shamers? The shamers were the ones that Jesus shamed. Everyone else, sexually broken, morally destitute, checkered history, anxious, depressed, these were the people that Christ met and, and, and met beautifully and fiercely and with loyalty, and with a fullness of love. Salt. So, there's also light. You are, you are the light of the world. So, the function of light is to expose darkness. Light also lifts the mood and, and brings joy. So, how many of us know what seasonal affective disorder is? Seasonal affective disorder hits mainly in the winter months. 
Seasonal Affective Disorder, or the acronym is SAD, SAD, happens when there is a a dearth of light, when there is a lack of illumination, and, and, and it creates a depressive, sleepy, sad mood. And what the experts say is that, that, is that you know, seasonal affective disorder is triggered by, by low sunlight levels, but, but they'll also say that exposure to light will improve the mood, will strengthen energy, and, and improve and enhance alertness. So, so to tie this all together, Mother Teresa said this. Listen to this. Spread love everywhere you go. Let no one ever come to you without leaving happier. That's what it means to be light, to be an antidepressant in a depressing world, relationally and otherwise, relationally, organizationally, systemically, to, 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 to steward your resources, to steward your presence in the world as an antidepressant somewhere. You know, Anne Rice, you know, tells the story of her coming out of atheism and into belief in Jesus Christ in, in her work uh, entitled Called Out of Darkness. Listen to what she says. To my amazement, church-going people completely embraced me. They said nothing about the transgressive books that I'd written. She'd written a bunch of vampire books. They simply welcomed me into their homes and into their arms This was as shocking as it was wonderful. As I met more and more church-going friends, I was intrigued by the way that they managed to live in the world as believers. The world of atheism was cracking apart for me. I was losing my faith in the non-existence of God. This highly intelligent woman, notice what she didn't say? Christian logic that's what won me over. Somebody arguing me in the kingdom and showing me how wrong I am and how right they are, that's what won me over. Somebody scolding me for my ethics and my sexuality, that's what won me over to Jesus. Notice that's not what she said. What she said is, people loved me. She didn't say a person loved me, she said, a, she said people loved me. Never forget a woman coming, you know, unmarried, pregnant, young, scarlet letter, very, very suspicious about Jesus and Christians. And a group of people came around her and bought her diapers and entered her life and shared their stories with her and listened to her as she shared her story of brokenness. And through this process, she becomes a follower of Jesus. And her testimony was this, I fell in love with Jesus, not in spite of Christians, but because of them. Let me say that again. I I fell in love with Jesus not in spite of Christians, but because of them. Unbelievable. Salt, anti-depressive light that's so lovely. And the city, I don't don't need to dwell on the city metaphor uh, because it's so interconnected to the other two. You are a city on a hill that can't be hidden. I I will say this, like the light that you put on a stand, the city on a hill, this whole metaphor is, is to say, put it on display. 
Don't confine your good works to the inside of the sanctuary. Don't confine your good works to to the, the little tribe of your small group or your connect group or your youth ministry or what have you. Let your light shine out there because Trump ain't the answer to the world's problems and to make America great again. And Hillary ain't the answer to a bright, beautiful, lovely, diverse future that you are not likely to be included in. Some trust in princes. Some trust in chariots, power. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Yeah? Really? Here's what the phrase good works means. Kalos means beautiful. Let your beautiful works be on display that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Not glorify you, not look at you and tell you, say, oh, what, what a great church. What a great, you know, person. What a great family. That I'm a failure if you walk away talking about my great sermons but not talking about Jesus. I'm not here to draw attention to me. I'm here to draw attention to Him. We don't go out in the world to draw attention to ourselves. We go out into the world with beautiful works to draw attention to Jesus. That may be, they may glorify not us. That may be, they may glorify our Father in heaven. We are a pointer. We are not the point in God's mission. Tim Keller says this. The vision is this. It's very simple. To be living so beautifully that the people around you who do not believe what you do will soon be unable to imagine the world without you. How do we locate these metaphors into our own context? Public faith, what does it mean? What does this mean for us programmatically and organically? So, a word about programs. Programs are designed to inspire organic ministry. Programmatically, we will commit ourselves to beautiful words to resisting gossip, to resisting sarcasm and cynicism and shaming, to resisting those urges, those churchly sins that are just as bad as non-churchly sins. They're listed right alongside in Paul's sort of Romans 1 discourse. Gossip and slander and backbiting and divisions, just as wicked, maybe even more so, because we should know better than sexual immorality or, or... other sins that seem to occupy so much of the fixation of people of faith in the last 20 years. Beautiful words. Or as Ann Voskamp said, and I referred to last week, words that are spoken to make souls stronger. Hosting public conversations, that's one of the ways that we'll do this programmatically. Your Q Commons this Thursday, 7 p.m., that's an expression uh, of what I'm talking about here programmatically. Another one would be November 6th, right here, 4 p.m., Samantha Fisher uh, from WKRN, also part of our community, uh, Governor Haslam, also part of our community, and then Michael Ware, my friend from Washington, D.C., who worked in the Obama administration. Did you hear that? We got a, we'll have a Republican and a Democrat on stage two days before the national election being civil and loving one another well because they recognize that there's a bigger king and a bigger kingdom that, that they're both part of. 
that pulls them away from partisan spin and partisan rhetoric and partisan BS and moves them toward integrity and moves them toward truth and beauty and justice and compels them at times to actually separate themselves from partisan platforms because of their loyalty to the king and the kingdom, just like Matthew, the tax collector who worked for the government, and Simon, the zealot who was opposed to the government, did together. Nobody's having those kinds of civil conversations politically. We're, we're going we're gonna to put a light bulb up here and, 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 and demonstrate something different. Hopefully a light so lovely. Hope you'll bring friends. Hope you won't just come by yourself. I hope you'll bring a friend who's cynical about Christianity and who's cynical about Christians who have co-opted their politics with their faith and made things worse instead of better. But, and here's why we brought, here's one of the main reasons why we brought Russ Ramsey onto our team as our, our pastor for seekers. We want these bigger, beautiful words, public discourses to make it into your living rooms as you handpick church friends, Christian friends, and friends who don't identify with Jesus and bring them together around conversations that, that matter to everybody. We're going to provide leadership to help you do that and to help you do that well and beautifully so that it becomes more organic and becomes more of a movement. Beautiful Deeds is another one. The next two weeks, we're going to talk about mercy and justice partnerships. Jesus is all about the poor, the spirit of the sovereign Lord. He was poor, first of all, but then his first public sermon was, was this, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and, and, to, and to loose the captives and, and to, 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 to set the oppressed free of all the injustices, right? So an acid test for true discipleship is are you with the poor and are you for the poor? And so we pour a lot of resources all those things that Kate was praying about a minute ago, we pour resources and people into those efforts to fight the darkness, to surround a decaying world with salt so that people can be loved to life and institutions and systems can be loved to life to something more just and true and beautiful, but also the integration of faith and work. That's in a couple of weeks also. So I won't belabor those two things. They're both immensely important and they'll both get their press, but right now, I want to talk about and imagine together with you what, what it would look like for us to become a deployed community, a deployed you know, collection of salt shakers who are intentional and strategic about our neighbors in need. We're always looking for somebody to care for. We're always looking for somebody to love out of a broken place. What if some of us committed this week to find one thing to deprogram out of our lives to create space for people who don't go to church? One thing, deprogram it out of our lives to make some space and some margin so that when that neighbor of yours gets a divorce or loses a child or hears the diagnosis or loses a job or lives alone or is subject to public shame, you have the freedom in your life and schedule to be the first responder and to reach out to two or three of your friends here from your community here who've walked a similar path and invite that person over to dinner, bring them over, share stories together and see what Jesus does with it. Can we deprogram our busy lives just to make space for the simple, organic call to love? If the church is not the first responder, there will not, responder, there will not be a second responder, folks. 
because we live in a community, in a world that, that is completely obsessed with our own stuff, our own schedules, our own agendas, our own goals, our own ambitions, our own greed, our own politics. We are so freaking upset that we don't even know the name of the people who live two doors down. And that's wrong. It's wicked. To be that disengaged from people who sleep a hundred feet away from where we do. On the lighter side, music folks, Keith Richards is 72 years old, Rolling Stones guitarist. For years, for decades, drug addicted, chain smoking still. And we've come to believe, haven't we, that Keith Richards is immortal. So I saw an image on the internet of Keith Richards a while back, and the caption read this, we need to start worrying about what kind of world we are going to leave for Keith Richards. <laughs> In a sense, it's actually true. Because it is the sick, not the healthy, right, Jim? It is the sinners and not the righteous that Christ has come for. It's the addicted, chain-smoking, elderly person on a stage. You know how lonely the stage is? Stage is oftentimes the loneliest place in the entire room. Nashville, did you know that? What an opportunity Keith Richards and everything that he represents is for the church. If there's not the church being the first responder, there's not going to be a second responder. Which leads us lastly to a beautiful home to be the family that the world wants to be part of. This also requires us to deprogram our travel and to deprogram our 15 sports leagues and activities and to deprogram our obsession about getting Junior into Vanderbilt, to create space, margin, life, so that there can be a beautiful home dynamic because we're there for each other, to be the family that the world wants to be part of. I love what Chesterton said, let your religion be less of a theory and more of a love affair. And this starts in the way that we love each other. This starts by, be, by becoming the community where if you have cancer, you don't have cancer alone. Where if you're anxious and depressed, you're not anxious and depressed alone. If you're addicted, you're not addicted alone. If you are sexually starved and broken, you are not sexually starved and broken alone. If you are lonely, you are not lonely alone. That's Jesus' vision for His family. Like they say about the mom on the plane, she's got to put her oxygen mask on first before she can take care of the baby in her lap. But in that home, the, 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 the hospitality factor is at a premium as well. The door is never closed, never closed 
to the weary world outside. This is how my predecessor, Ray Ortland, who is now a pastor of a church that he planted in the Sylvan Park area, starts every worship service at Emmanuel Church. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, the justifier of those who have no excuses left. No better place, no better time to live this vision out than at this table right here. This is the table where souls are made stronger. As words that make souls stronger are spoken over you and a community of others around the table with you. That's why we do it every week. We can't afford to do it less often than that. This table we're about to gather around, this feast in front of us, it's, it's a perfectly salted table. We don't have anything that we can do. There's nothing that we can do to improve upon this table. It's perfectly salted. And, and, and what we come to do is we bring our empty shakers to this table to be filled so that then we will have the salt to take out into the world to, to, to sprinkle uh, all over the places where we live, work, and play. And then we come back to get refilled, and, and, and the cycle goes like that. And part of that filling is actually done through one another. That's why we have a vision for a loud loud communion Lord's Supper moment. When you're not standing around this table, when you're waiting in line, when you're sitting in your row, we want you, our vision over the next year, 20, is for you to get louder and louder and louder with each other because you're leaning into one another saying this is the moment of, of communion. This is the table of grace. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Therefore, how are you? Therefore, how can we serve you? Therefore, are you lonely, like he said? Therefore, is there anything that, that you feel God might be speaking into your life in this atmosphere this morning? Therefore, here are my own struggles. Here are my own weaknesses. Therefore, I need you. Get louder, not softer. Don't be a stick in the mud around a wedding feast. Jesus is the salt, we're the shakers. Jesus is the light. We're like the moon with the sun. Every, every bit of light that, that we shine is derivative. It bounces off of us. But, but the beauty of the moon is, is it, is it receives and, and then, you know, reflects the light of the sun and the power that comes from the sun. It, it lights up the night. To salt the earth, we have to first be salted. To be the light of the world, we have to first be illuminated. Remember Moses coming down after being with God on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights, and this shine on his face that was so bright they, 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 could, they could barely bear to look at him, which is a great reminder. It is not in exerting our effort to become like Jesus, that we become like Jesus. It's in being with Jesus. And part of the way that we get with Jesus is we deprogram some of our lives so that we can be with each other and behold in one another's face the face of Christ. And then we go out and move from strength to strength as the weak vessels that we are for His power is made perfect in our weakness. And as we do, we leave the city and the world better 
having been refreshed by our fellow citizens of the city of God. Let it be so. Let's pray ourselves to the table.